Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source for answers to questions about building companies, starting companies, and the meaning of life. We have a panel here of experienced founders, executives, and investors who have built companies across the board. And our goal is to share our experience with you and hopefully save you those hard lessons that we've learned the hard way. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a founder for about 20 years of companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I now coach and invest in companies, and I'm joined, as always, by Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name's Ash Rust, and I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through a fund I started called Sterling Road. Also worked at places like Trinity Ventures and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at social media company Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendUp. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders and have helped more than 1,500 startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. The skills that make the best founders are the same skills that everyone needs to succeed in the world of tomorrow. We help people and organizations build those skills. I've supported hundreds of folks on their startup and innovation quests, and I'm excited to get into today's round of questions. And that's only, uh, Nick, we've done this show quite a lot now, and you're still excited about it. Have you learned nothing about how bad my sense of humor is? I've learned to keep showing up. There's something working here for sure. That's right. There's some lesson about founders and and our pain tolerance, or maybe just our short memories about problems, but... uh, We are here to answer your questions. So as always in the Startup Help Desk, the questions we will answer today were submitted by founders just like you. So if you have a question, we would love to answer it. Go to our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com. Find us on X or Twitter or whatever it's called this week as at thestartuphd. And submit your questions. We collect the questions and we, we have these episodes and we like doing these episodes. So submit questions so we can have more episodes. Today, all of our questions are about turnarounds. We are recording this towards the end of 2023. Lots of companies are realizing they have to change their business model. They have to shift things. So we get a lot of questions around turnarounds. How do you make these turnarounds work? And obviously not the Sterling Road portfolio. We're all fine. (laughs) That's right. Everybody having problems is somebody else's portfolio. Our portfolios are absolutely perfect. Although I will say every single company that I have started myself, I am not too proud to admit has had to go through at least one very hard pivot, if not many hard pivots. And so turnarounds are something I'm very familiar with. So let's jump into our first question. So Ash and Nick, this is a question from a founder. Um, we had to make a hard pivot and basically went back to square one. Our investors keep asking for updates, but I'm not sure what to tell them since we don't have any metrics to share. What should I tell them? This is a good one. Ash, what do you think? I think that you start off with thinking about things in two phases. What should you actually be doing? And then secondly, what should you tell your investors? Now, it's important to think of it that way because you don't want one to pollute the other. I think it's really dangerous to try and base your actions on whatever you think might make the investors happy. So what you should be doing post-pivot or in the middle of a big pivot is restarting the customer discovery process, building out a wait list from the very beginning testing out user workflows, the basic stuff of building a new product from the very start. And then in terms of what investors want to hear about during that process, well, high level, how long is your runway? How much are you burning a month? What's the timeline for relaunch? And then you can give them the update in reasonable detail on the current progress or the customer discovery, maybe any 
fun stories about excessive interest you're experiencing from a couple of customers. It's okay for things not to be okay all the time. Any startup investor worth their salt will certainly know that most startups are going to fail. So this should be a movie they've seen many, many times. Uh, No need to hide anything, but you also don't need to give them the daily stand-up either. So Ash, is the is the point of not making investors or focusing on making investors happy because investors are never happy? Well, certainly true. Uh, maybe <laughs> until after the first yacht purchase. But um, in that purgatory zone, I mean, either way, like your job is just not to make investors happy. Your job is to make the company survive, right, in those situations. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always want to separate those two processes because I want you to have clear thinking and a bunch of time on just, okay, what's the best strategy? Selling that to investors or getting feedback from investors on it is a completely separate communication problem. And it can't interfere with the strategy, especially not at a time of high pressure like this. Agreed. I, I think that, that sounds spot sense. on. Yeah. And what, what I'll add to that is... Thanks, Nick. Yeah, listen, I like You listen like to it. that, Sean? <laughs> spot on. <laughs> That's right. I heard... Sorry, you're breaking up. Sorry. It's a new phone. Who's this? We'll make sure that my statement shows up in the episode notes, that's for sure, in terms of the ringing endorsement there. Uh, But yeah, I think that's spot on. What I will say is no one has ever said, I'm so glad you waited to tell me about the pivot. So part of this means, of course, move with conviction when it comes time to communicate that pivot. It does take courage to make sure that you do communicate said pivot and you can make it interesting. When an investor invests in you, especially in the early days, they are investing in you and the team, and their expectation is that there will be adaptations, if nothing else. And so a pivot is something that is not going to come at them as a surprise. That being said, you can make sure you pivot with conviction. You can have a clear plan. You can communicate the process that went into your decision, i.e. what was the evidence you got that made it clear it was time to pivot. And then even if you don't know exactly what the long-term roadmap will be post-pivot, you can clearly explain your process in terms of how you're going to be approaching these next steps and what you do have conviction on, i.e. you found a real problem that's worth fighting for and it's something that merits your attention moving forward. And then lastly, of course, the plan needs to involve talking to tons of customers. So make sure the volume of interactions with prospective customers is high on these next steps. Well, so Ash and Nick, this wasn't in the question from the founder, but I've seen it happen a few times in the last few years, and especially 2021, 2020, a lot of companies raised from non-traditional venture investors. And I know at least a few of them when they have sent out an investor update saying, hey, I'm doing this pivot, those non-venture investors have reacted quite negatively. They're not used to pivots. They see it as a sign of failure. Like I invested in you to do X. Why are you not doing X anymore? How do you handle those sorts of situations where you do get a negative reaction when you are honest about the pivot? I think it's the same thing, right? You're not you're not there to make them happy. You're there to make them money. So you need to think about what's best for the company and take on board all the feedback you receive from the investor community that's on your cap table. But it's not the final say. They hired you as a CEO when they invested. And uh, they don't get to decide the strategy. They get to give you feedback on it, but that's it. You also need to manage the pivot or the strategy well in advance. Once you've got investors on board, you need to clearly map out what are the biggest risks to the company? So what are the assumptions that you're facing today? That way they can understand if 
as you collect more data, you find out that this company needs to adjust. It is no longer something that is a surprise, but instead is part of the strategy. Fair enough. And everybody knows I'm not a huge fan of Web3, but this seems like a great Web3 application where if an investor wants to complain, they can use a paid service and pay you a certain number of Ethereum to submit that complaint under which you will consider it. So you can actually make money from it at the same time. I think Look we got that. something here. That's I right. I think we're on something. Web3. Nobody take this idea. Good. <laughs> oh, my word. Literally tomorrow, Ash is going to have his inbox full of pitches for this idea. It's going to be glorious. Yeah, I'm not a Web3 invested. <laughs> Don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Let's make sure we answer more than one question today. Ash, what else do we have on our queue? I had to fire my VP of sales, and now most of our sales team has quit. <sighs> I'm worried more people will start leaving. How do I hold the team together? Before we even jump and start answering this, let's let's all admit that even if this hasn't happened to you, this is like the nightmare of all founders. Right. This is like the nightmare we live with every day that this has happened to us. Especially Nick, if it's thinking? a high-quality executive. Like oh, you, yeah. you hired, oh. you worked for three or four months to hire, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm actually having to leave. I'm taking a COO position at this really hot startup that we just raised at a unicorn valuation from SoftBank." Bye. Oh, mm-hmm. Man, I, I have too much PTSD on this, Nick. You're gonna have to start off. I'll hop in here. I think ultimately the foundation of this is there's some indication of a deeper problem. Anytime others are following someone else's departure it's a signal that something's not working. So step one is figure out where the issue is, figure out where you went wrong. Perhaps you hired this individual poorly or you hired the additional folks that are on this team in an ineffective way. Perhaps you're just not plugged into the reality of what it's like working at your startup. Ultimately, you got to figure out where the issue is. The major wins when it comes to holding a team together are that people want transparency They want a clear commitment to address any issues within the company. And of course, they want a business that is on the right track and growing. So you have to start there and make sure that there's no foundational issues that are causing this problem. Then, of course, you can get into uh, talking to the team and figuring out. But Nick, what if if you're just like doing well, but not well enough, right? Like there was a period of time where Uber could hire anybody in Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's... Ultimately, your defining piece of your business is going to be the culture and the tone you set that's working there. And I think this is something that Sean has mentioned in the past too, which is that part of your product is the culture. And so the culture needs to resonate and be something that really motivates folks to be there for the long haul. It's interesting. I, th- I very rarely disagree with Nick, but I, I do have a slight disagree with you here, Nick, which is sales teams are very specific in that it is very common for account executives to follow a specific sales leader. And so if your sales leader leaves, it's actually quite common for people to leave to follow them where they're going, which is also when you hire a new sales leader, it's you're looking for sales leaders who have enough team fidelity to bring people with them. So it might actually just be that your sales leader left and they're t- these are people that they hired who are falling to the next gig, and your job is to rebuild. It's, it doesn't mean it's any better. It's still bad, but it might not reflect in your company at all. It just is sometimes a nature of But this of will make you improve. feel better. <laughs> I do. I, what, I, will, I will agree with Nick because he, he did a shout back to something I said in a previous episode. I have respect for that, that somebody was paying attention to something I said. There it which is. is uh, Don't accept the bribe. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm so easy. It's very easy. It's uh, in the end, 
the goal is not to try to keep people from leaving. It's giving them a reason to stay. So why should everybody else stay? Even if the sales team left for good reasons or reasons not even reflective of your business, like why should they stay? What's the vision? What's the excitement? What do you give them they can't get somewhere else? Maybe you can't be the fastest growing company they could work for, but can you give them something in the quality of the work that they do or how you empower them? Like donuts. At donuts are, mm-hmm, are great, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, literally, can you give them anything they can't get somewhere else? And in general, what I found is that it's very hard for most companies to identify what it is they offer employees that those employees can't get somewhere else. And if you haven't thought about that, when people leave, you really start thinking about it and you hopefully should have an answer of some kind. It used to be, for example, one great way to differentiate was to have a flexible work from home policy. And in the pre-pandemic era, if you had a flexible policy, you could hire people who other companies could not hire because they wanted to work from home from Idaho. And of course, now so many companies are remote first. That's no longer an issue. At the same time, some a lot of companies are now mandatory requiring back to the back in the office. I know a lot of companies that are able to scoop up better people than they were before because they are remote first. And these people, their options are are shrinking as companies mandate back in the office. And so you can differentiate what it means to work at your company. Maybe it's the work you do. Maybe it's how you inspire them, the kind of opportunity they have. Maybe it's just their work environment, how flexible you are. But have a reason for them to stay. And if you don't, I would figure it out and try to create one. Otherwise, people will leave. And it does become a kind of momentum game where once the more people that leave, the more people that won't leave. And I will confess, and this is criticism I got from my board, and I think it was fair, which I, I was always a CEO that was overly anxious about these kind of cascading departures where it kind of snowballs, where one person leads to two people leaving, two people leaves to four people leaving, and all of a sudden people leave the door. I was always overly sensitive to it, but partly because I, I just saw the people as such a big investment. You're spending so much time hiring them and so much time getting them up to speed to have them walk out the door. It just, it feels so painful. And, and I try to do everything. I probably did too much to try to keep them from walking out the door, but it was always an area that bothered me. And it was a reoccurring nightmare that one day everybody, you come into the office or you sign onto the all, all hands zoom and you'd be the only one there because everybody else would have left. I have that as, I still, I'm not even a CEO anymore. I have that as a reoccurring nightmare. Look at that. Okay, Nick, Nick, change the topic. Quick, quick, give us another question. All right, let's do it. This is the third question we received from a startup founder. We were growing well, but the last two quarters, growth has been really slow or flat. How do we bounce back from the slowdown? Yeah, well, so far, this has been me repeatedly. I mean, who among us has not seen your business kind of hit? I call these air pockets when like you're growing fast and all of a sudden you're not growing so fast anymore. And so the first thing you want to make sure is like, is this real? So at my first company, um, Flurry, we we had very fast growth. We were tracking mobile apps and mobile apps were taking off. But every September we had this problem. Every September growth would start to hit this air pocket. And every September, it was an emergency to figure out why it was shrinking. And every September, we came to the same answer, which was kids were going back to school. And so they weren't on their phones as much. And pumpkin spice, right? (laughs) And pumpkin spice, exactly. It's hard to compete with that. That's right. So so every, every September, we had this fire drill and every September. So first, make sure it's actually you and not the market. Sometimes these things happen. But usually, if you have a slowdown for two straight quarters, it probably is you. So the next thing to realize is, you know what? If you had product market fit, you can lose product market fit. It happens all the time. You need to make sure you focus on what changed. It always amazes me 
companies have this interesting kind of willful blindness about their fundamentals. Because once something's working, they tend not to pay attention to them as much. And so when they shift, like let's say, for example, you're selling a product to CMOs and your job just to, to help to solve them is to help them maximize their conference effectiveness, that they get more out of the conferences that they pay to attend. And all of a sudden, what if something shifts? What if those same CMOs stop going to conferences? Or what if they go to a different set of conferences that include tools that do the same thing that your product was supposed to do for them? There's cases where your fundamental shift, and it's amazing how companies often don't see them because they don't want to see them. They don't want to admit that the, this fundamental that we worked so hard to create, this product market fit, that something changes. So you try to force it to work. You try to, and a lot of companies that raise a lot of capital use capital to try to force it through to make it through. And the reality is you have to go back to testing experimentation. I think that was a good point from the first question, which is you have to go back to experiment, test, move quickly, and just be really honest when you look in the mirror and say, you know what? We worked really hard, maybe for five years, maybe seven years to build this thing. And now we part in some ways we have to start over again to, to rebuild this, this part that's now missing. But Ash, you worked with many more companies. I'm sure you've seen this kind of air pocket situation more than once. What advice do you give your companies when they hit these air pockets? Yeah, I mean, flat growth is definitely a feature of startups as a general rule. It is a rite of passage, certainly even more frequent than fundraising drama, although that comes up a lot too. So I always like to think of this as a funnel, pretty much always. So distribution at the very beginning, uh, then uh, closing your margins and churn. So where in the funnel is your growth breaking down? Have you seen a drop in distribution or interest in the product? Are you struggling to close people? Have your margins changed for the worse? Are you seeing customers leave? Once we have that isolated down to the rough area where things have stopped or that you know this funnel narrows, then we can think about what our response is going to be. And that very much depends on where in the funnel there's a problem. If it's a distribution issue, you might try new marketing channels. If we're struggling to close, we might talk about new features. If it's a churn problem, it might be better reliability. And you're going to expect to have to iterate through those things maybe one or two times in order to figure out how you are going to resolve this issue. But as a general rule, take a step back, look at things as a funnel, see where that funnel uh, has a narrow or choke point and then start testing things to fix that. Also, do you do you both think that ultimately the tactics you shared here, generally speaking, should just be applied during your startup journey, whether you are running into these flatline growth or not? Because ultimately, this really is a function of continuous testing, continuous finding new opportunities for growth, and continuously figuring out, do we need to reinvent something or not? Seems like that should be part of the DNA, right? It, no, I think it's dangerous. And so I'll say this. I, I work with a lot of later stage companies and there's a point where really the the business is about optimizing the engine. The engine's working and the goal mm -hmm. is to optimize and make it run faster. And I think a lot of times founders will evolve. They're very familiar with that kind of scrappy experimental stage. And you keep doing that long after it's a good idea. So instead of optimizing your engine, you're throwing in new products, you're going into new markets, you're going to new verticals. And it's kind of a little bit of a mess where really at some point your focus is on optimizing and making the engine run faster and faster and more efficiently. Um, and likewise, I think a lot of companies in that efficiency mode, they struggle to shift back into experimentation mode once they lose part of product market fit because they've gotten so good at optimizing the engine 
the fundamental shift and they, they have a bunch of people in their team who maybe don't even know how to experiment. They're just engine optimizers. So I do think it's important that you know what you need to be good at and what you need to be focused on. Because if you keep doing something too long, it becomes a liability. I can't tell you how many startups I see where they have something that's working. It's really promising. But instead of really investing and refining it, they're like, I have a new idea for a product. Or let's like, you know, go into this new thing that we don't know anything about and burn a whole bunch of money trying to figure out if we can make it work there too. Let's add AI. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what this Next product week. really needs is another <laughs> large variable cost on the open AI <laughs> uh, token API. <sighs> and next week on the Startup Help Desk, the AI-based help desk. <laughs> oh, actually, that's not a bad idea. We'll talk about that after the episode is over. That's good. Well, we have only a few minutes left. Let's hit the lightning round. I'm going to ask you guys a few questions about turnarounds. You have 20 seconds to answer, less than that if possible. Uh, we'll go in the order of Ash, Nick, and then I'll throw in any ideas I have afterwards. So first question, lightning round. Should I tell my new VP hire about all of our problems or let them find out when they start? Ash. You need to tell them about some of the problems, but not every little detail. Nick. Tell them about the problems that you are hiring them to solve. Very good. I agree with both of you have no new notes. Excellent. Okay. When do I tell my team about a pivot? Ash. As soon as you're sure you're going to pivot. Nick. Yeah, immediately. You can't pivot solo. Uh, my answer is pr- preferably before you completed the pivot, because uh, it would be very confusing if you waited that long. So. <laughs> 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 oh, man. I, so in, in closing quickly, I mean, Nick Ash, we've all done this a lot. Do you have an estimate of how many times you've had to implement some form of pivot or turnaround at your companies? Most companies are going to change their path by a pretty significant margin at the stage that I'm at. So if I'm investing within 12 years, 12 months of uh, the incorporation, I, I don't know a single time where they're doing the exact same thing. Oh no, maybe like one, 90% are we going to pivot? Yeah, we always joke that the only guarantee when you're getting started with your startup is that whatever your idea is today, that's not going to be what your startup is as you start to scale. And so, yeah, very common. Yeah. I mean, I've lost time. How many times I've lost count of how many times I've had to pivot. So it's common. Well, hopefully these answers have helped you in your startup journey. If you're looking to do a turnaround or a pivot, um, as you can tell, we've been there and hopefully you'll get through. Sometimes you do. And honestly, Sometimes you don't. Startups are hard. But anyway, Ash and Nick, as always, thank you for the answers that you provided. Yeah, thank you both. Oh, thank you, Sean. We're just so grateful. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. This show is all about gratitude. Well, that's the end of the startup episode for today. If you have questions, please submit them. Our website is thesartofhelpdesk.com. Our x slash Twitter handle is thesartofhd. We'd love to hear from you. For now, the Startup Help Desk is closed, but good luck in building your business.